This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to I Know That Face, the only podcast which honors the often underappreciated by the masses work of character actors. I'm Stephen Portia. My name is Andrew Carroll. Today we are talking about the great Dane himself, Mads Mikkelsen. Andrew, run down his history. Mads Mikkelsen was born in Copenhagen, Denmark in 1965. As a young man, he trained as a gymnast before eventually becoming a dancer. He left dancing behind to study acting in 1996, and soon after he was cast as drug dealer Tony in Nicholas Winding Refn's Crime Thriller Pusher, a role he would reprise in the sequel. His first leading roles came in the early 2000s with a number of unusual roles including an exasperated encyclopedia salesman slash porn dealer in Torre Molinos 73 and a sweaty Sven in The Green Butchers. He came to international infamy with Casino Royale. He played Le Chief against Daniel Craig's gritty, hot-headed James Bond. In Europe, Mickelson maintained a reputation for daring and complicated lead roles, while in Hollywood he was sought after, after for films like Doctor Strange and The Three Musketeers. 2012 saw him win the Cannes Best Actor Award for Thomas Vinterberg's The Hunt. Between 2013 and 2015, he played the world's most famous fictional serial killer, Hannibal Lecter, on the NBC show of the same name. More recently, he has appeared in the music video for Rihanna's Bitch Better Have My Money, Hideo Kojima's video game Death Stranding, the Danish action comedy Riders of Justice, and a BAFTA-nominated role in Thomas Vinterberg's Another Round. His upcoming roles include replacing Johnny Depp as Grindelwald in the Fantastic Beasts series, and an unnamed role in the fifth Indiana Jones movie. Can you tell that was rehearsed? I did that clean, <laughs> no breaks. Very good, very Unreal. good. And um, yeah, we're joined on the show by a returning uh, favourite guest, uh, the first to join the Three Timers Club, Sean Mariani. Welcome to the show. The most handsome man in Denmark being covered by the three most handsome podcasters in Ireland. <laughs> very true, very true. That's, 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 <laughs> yes, yeah. I'm not going to correct you. And uh, yeah, myself and Andrew invited you on, Sean, because you you were so hyped about another round coming out this summer. And then less than a month later, another Danish film at Mads, Riders of Justice, came out, making summer of 2021 officially Mad Summer. Mads Boy Summer. Mad Boy Summer. <laughs> and Mad Summer. <laughs> yeah, the three of us saw both of those movies together, and uh, I think the, they're both awesome. But also, Mickelson's performance in those movies are, are, are so different, and he's incredible in both, and... That got me thinking about how consistently versatile and transformative he's been since the start of his career in the 90s in his, his home country's movies. And I, I think Denmark has a great cinema scene. But then, also in comparison to that, you start to realise how typecast he's been in Hollywood, you know, being reduced to playing these kind of cool-looking, imposing, but sort of a little bit boring anti-heroes or villains in blockbusters. So I, I thought we could hash it all out and maybe encourage people to check out some of Mickelson's work in those Danish flicks. And But before we, we get into discussing the movies themselves, I was wondering, do you have any kind of broader thoughts on Mickelson? Well, I just think he's, um, like you talk about, like one of the, the best character actors working today. Like he's a man who, whenever you see him in like one of the mainstream blockbuster films, you can pinpoint him, oh, it's the guy from Casino Royale or it's the guy from... Uh, uh, Doctor Strange, but yet at the same time he's able to uh, go back to his roots, like in Danish uh, films, and really show his true ability as a powerful drama actor, as, and also that he he can um, show 
just by looking. Like he doesn't have to communicate how he's feeling. Like you can look at his face and you can tell immediately what he's feeling in the scene. I agree. I just really love Hannibal. <laughs> oh really? Yeah, I actually didn't know you watched Hannibal. <laughs> no, I watched I watched I've seen the first two and a half seasons and the third one like I, I love I love like monster of the week types of it or ca- like case of the week stuff. So I'm a huge fan of the X Files, uh, like the weirder stuff, like the X Files or something like that. So Hannibal, there, you don't get much weirder or mm. weirdly sexual than uh, Hannibal on NBC. <laughs> uh, and those first two seasons are like perfect TV. Uh, that's coming. This is coming. That's coming from someone who will not watch an episode of TV unless it has its hooks in me from the like second one. Mm. So. I should tell you how good it is. Yeah, I started the first season recently, and um, I was definitely like, it, it has a lot of fun with the visual imagery of just like uh, totem poles full of corpses and all that, or <laughs> the way they they managed to put a violin into a human body. Like I was just like, there's definitely a lot of creativity behind this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a gorgeous show, and uh, it weirdly also because. Yeah, he does eat people, but like the dishes in that show are presented so beautifully that it does make you hungry when you watch it. It's very weird. Yeah. Yeah, when he cracks open the clay and it's just Eddie Izzard's baked thigh, and you're like, oh, that looks delicious. <laughs> Listen, we, we, we can get into it later. <laughs> Great show. Um, we're, we've all watched, I think, a lot of very different movies, and uh, I'm kind of curious where, where to begin, but I was thinking maybe just chronologically. So, Sean, if you wanted to maybe kick off with talk about the Pusher movies that Matt is in, I think he's in the, the first and the second one. Yeah, sure. I rewatched it in the lead up to the. I'd seen it like a, a few months prior, uh, both Pusher one and two, and it's kind of funny now to think like with, we know Nicholas Winding Refn to be known for his visuals and his hyper stylization, but with this film, like it, it's very grounded. Like it's almost like documentary style filmmaking. It's very seedy. Like the film that reminded me a lot of was uh, Good Time by the Safdie Brothers. The way mm-hmm. it just feels like you're following these two. Um, drug dealers in Copenhagen just running around and apparently that was the reason they were able to get away with a lot of filming without permits because they would just look around and they, the public would think that Mads Mikkelsen and the other actor were just two drug dealers running around being mad. Mad Mads, that's what they call it. <laughs> in the first film you have the focus on one character but then in the second one the focus is entirely on Mads's character Tony who's almost like, um, you don't know that much about him in the first film he, when you upon first glance, he looks like a kind of a custom made character you get in GTA. Like he has like a respect tattoo in the back of his forehead. He's wearing this uh, red bomber jacket, and he's very braggadocious. And he's there's one scene where he's talking about like a woman he got with, and it's very uh, vulgar and crass. Like it's very like it's not your conventional film. Like it's very extreme. Which I know like uh, Nicholas Wynn Refn has like a he has a um, a tendency to go for the extreme in his filmmaking. But you learn a lot more in Pusher 2 about Tony and you start to realise that like this guy is an absolute loser. Like <laughs> his dad is like a um like one of the a crime bosses called the Duke. He he doesn't have any respect to him and then when he gets out of prison he finds out he his father had fathered another child with another woman who he has a lot more respect for. And then Tony, upon coming out of prison, also finds out that he has had a, he has a, a child with a woman named Charlotte. And in all avenues, he's just being disrespected. So that um, Charlotte like berates him for not picking up her cigarettes from the shop. Or there's a point in which Tony wants to prove himself and going on a heist, and he's just so bottom of the barrel and so underappreciated that the uh, the rest of the guys in the heist make him go in the boot for the heist because there's no room left in the car. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely for Mads like it's 
one of those roles because we often see him down roles where he's very um, charismatic and kind of front and center but it's weird seeing him almost being like a whipping boy like being slapped around and told like how terrible he is at what he does and all that and how he'll never amount to anything little did they know <laughs> yeah it's actually one of my favorite trilogies of movies the pusher films because it you know Refn broke onto the scene with this movie which it feels a bit like good time or kind of uncut gems like it's very stressful it's basically this guy um played by kim bodnia um, um who owes a debt to someone and he over the course of like a week has to like pay it off and uh, it's just kind of constantly running around and he has the sidekick played by mads mickelson who's a bit of an idiot then Refn went on into america to make a movie called fear x with john Turturro, which is an interesting movie but it was a big flop and basically he, he was going to go bankrupt the, the studio that he had made unless he went back and did pusher two and three and he shot them uh, very quickly back to back and there's a great documentary about a gambler, which is as stressful as Pusher because it's literally them making the movie and like being like, we're going to go broke. We're gonna, it's like following him as he's making the movie. But I, what I love about Pusher yeah. 2 is that like it goes from being this just like tense as hell crime thriller to being sort of like a study of toxic masculinity and a lot more kind of emotional Definitely. and dramatic. And then the third movie is it, Mads Mikkelsen isn't in the third movie, but it follows... Um, another character from the first movie who was sort of the boss, the person the guy owed the money to, and you sort of see that his life is miserable too, and it sort of all comes to show that, like, crime doesn't pay. And, uh, it, yeah, it's a, it's a really good trilogy of movies. Uh, people should seek them out. I really loved uh, all three of them. I thought with the third, like, you can see... we Also, another thing we're known with Nicholas Reffin now is that, like, he loves his violence, and you can see in Pusher 3, like, him kind of starting to find a taste for that like this the extended torch scene that i felt like went on like way too long and they're like they're cutting the guy open in half yeah i i also love about how um in the second pusher i love how um it, going back to the safety brothers uh connection that it's almost like with harrod ratner like you're like man just stop like come on you want him in a way he's not endearing but you kind of want him to get through what he's going through but at the same time he just keeps messing up every opportunity he gets and also that he's earning the thing that he has tattooed on the back of his head respect like he's trying and he's just not getting it from anyone yeah it's very it's a very european thing but the idea that you don't have to find a person likable to find them compelling like that's kind of runs throughout all those movies and and sort of the safety brothers thing as yeah. well um also i think in when you watch you know you mentioned pusher one is so realistic and you know um authentic and doesn't feel very stylish but you sort of see that style, I think, kind of creep in in the second movie. Where isn't there a scene where I think Mickelson goes to visit um, a woman, or it might be a prostitute? It's been ages since I've seen the movie. Yeah. But um, it's all like red, like blood red in the room, and you sort of see that it coming later in his career in Valhalla Rising, which I'll talk about later. But then also like Only God Forgives and the Neon Demon and you know Too Old to Die Young and things like that. Isn't that a, isn't Valhalla Rising like just all red? There's segments of it that are like in just spliced where it's like dream sequences that are done entirely like with like a red filter. Okay, yeah. Well, I can go straight into talking about it now. So, like Valhalla Rising, set in uh, 1096, uh, it centers on a mute pagan warrior named One Eye uh, because he has one eye. Who was played by Mads Mikkelsen um, and forced for some time to be a fighting slave. He escapes and murders his captors, only sparing a young boy. And together with the boy, he joins a, a group of Christian crusaders on their quest to the Holy Land. But instead of finding the Holy Land, they find themselves in this like unknown place where they are assailed by unseen forces and dark visions. And I think it's wrapping in more of his kind of artsy weird zone. Uh, it's a bit of an odd duck because parts yeah. of it feel like a roided out sort of period adventure epic, like 300 or Conan the Barbarian, but with Vikings. And it's some, you know, something really stylish and like viscerally violent. 
but then also like a lot of it is very abstract and slow and there's these lengthy passages so i think we're trying to expose the hypocrisy of religion and how these so-called like civilized people going to these like parts of the world spreading the word of god or barbarians themselves and uh, but that said like well that is a part of the movie i think the plot itself doesn't make much literal sense or add up to much at least for me and but i think there are two reasons why you should watch this and like yeah it looks and sounds incredible like most of it is shot in these like scottish mountains that are so like bleak and brooding and unforgiving that it genuinely feels like they've been like untouched by humanity <laughs> but then like you have <laughs> that kind of grayness juxtaposed these visions of one eyes character um that he has of the future and then yeah as you meant andrew they're just like colored blood red and feel like really hallucinogenic and um the color palette of the movie really pops and then you have this like epic droning score as well and it just feels massive and it's, it's worth noting Charlene and I um, were recently gifted a movie projector and the first thing we watched on it was Valhalla Rising and it was great because it's just a movie that should be just seen <laughs> like on the, the old, biggest screen. The ultimate date night movie. Just oh yeah. yeah. And it, you know, it's the style is the substance and even though like Charlene who uh, wasn't very into it, <laughs> into the story or the setting of the movie, it's just not her thing. Even she was like, man, these colors are cool. <laughs> like, she's said it multiple times. Oh, um, but I do think that my girlfriend, girlfriend watched Sallow or the 120 Days of Sodom. It was and, uh, Cannibal Holocaust tonight, babe. And then the next movie we watched <laughs> Sorry, on the projector was David Lynch's Dune. <laughs> well. so oh my I God. feel like I owe her one. Like we should watch something for her next yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. But um, I think you owe her more than one. <laughs> watch like a rom com, a rom com next or something. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> but I, but I do think uh, another reason to watch Valhalla Rising is uh, Mickelson as one who, despite not saying one word throughout the the whole movie, like he's totally silent. He's just so effortlessly commanding and. You know, he's so badass and opposing. He's ripped. He's got these tribal tattoos all over his body. He's got war scars. He, he's six foot in real life, too. And, you know, he's bringing that to the character. And I, and also, he's just so feral in the early, you know, fight scenes where he, you know, he's fighting to the death for, you know, his captor's entertainment. And he just feels like a force of nature. And he's, he's this enigma throughout the movie. Like, people talk about him in mythic terms that he, like, grew up in hell. There's readings of the movie that suggest that he's actually Odin, you know, the Norse god. And he does project this sort of otherworldly quality where you can never really get a sense of what he's going to do or what he's thinking, which makes him very kind of compelling and exciting. But then there's he gives you just enough yeah. humanity to make you root for him. And I, I think a lot of that is in the relationship with the young boy, which grows over the course of the movie. And at the beginning, he acts sort of indifferent to this kid before eventually forming this like unspoken, at least on his end, um, bond with him and then being mm -hmm. willing to kill to protect him. And it's kind of a little sweet relationship in the middle of this like brutal movie. But uh, I think if I have a problem with the movie, I think as it goes on, one eye takes a bit of a backseat to the Crusaders he joins. And I just think the second half of the movie doesn't feel... As strong as tight as the first i think refn is better at the violence and the savagery and the mayhem than kind of commenting on it and then i just think mickelson despite having no dialogue in the movie is just so much more engrossing to watch than these scottish actors who play the crusaders who can talk uh, but just don't leave that much of an impression and you, every time you're you're focused on the crusaders you, you, they, they all look the same and you, you struggle to tell them apart and you're like millhouse and the simpsons waiting for itchy and scratchy to get to the firework museum and you know like, like when, where are they gonna get to the holy land when is mads yeah. gonna kill someone again come on i i think it's like one of mads's um most underrated performance it kind of goes under the radar like when you see the poster you assume it's gonna be mads mix and going like in a violent rampage but it, the film's a lot more 
subdued and I was in the, in the lead up to the podcast I was listening to interviews with them and they, they were talking about how uh, when he was collaborating with Nicholas on creating the character they would strip back the humanity so even little simple gestures of scratching his eye or like putting his hand through his hair he was like no just he, he's almost like a lion in a cage they, like in the opening scene where you see him fighting one of the men after he beats the man like pretty much to death he then turns to his captors and almost gives them like the, the cuff me gesture as if like He's kind of at the, at the stage where you're not really sure how long he's been with these people, but he's at a point in which he, he he's aware of the routine that okay, I'm under your captive, and he's on, he wants to get out, but he's looking for that right opportunity. But mm. he, it's almost like he doesn't know where he's going, and like this this idea of that is he a messiah figure or is he something from hell? These are the characters are interpreting him as they come along the way. It's like oh, he he's the next thing we should follow. Yeah, and it's it's just so crazy of Nicholas winning Raffin to be like, yeah, you're going to play this character who is just totally unknowable. You're sort of the the MacGuffin of the movie. You cool with yeah. that? And Mads is like, yeah. And it's actually the best bit of the movie. Apparently he came to him and said, the pitch was, all right, we're going to do a Viking movie. You're a man with no past, no present, no future. You kill a lot of people. Mads is like, I'm on board. <laughs> oh, but, I, but I did also hear that he thought it was going to be a very easy gig because he didn't have any dialogue but then didn't realise yeah. he was going to be naked running around in the Scottish Highlands you know, in winter fighting in the mud and yeah. being dragged across like the hills and all that I find the first two thirds of that film really captivating and then the final act I'm kind of like where is this going because it kind of feels yeah. like they're losing the overall objective like it's almost like a metaphor of them being stuck at sea it's like we don't know where we're going with this but mm. we're, hope- we're hoping we find a plot along the way yeah, and it's just like the Crusaders all turn on each other and start like massacring each other. And you're, while that's happening, it, could, it keeps coming to Mads Mikkelsen building this sort of strange cairn that's very mysterious. And you're just so much more into the cairn and Mads Mikkelsen than all the carnage, which is um, some feet, you know. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. yeah it, it's not a movie for everyone, but it, I think it's definitely a cool cult movie with like lots to like. And I think people like a bit a bit of bloody action, but also like a movie with their like, it's emphasis. It's brutal as well. There's oh, yeah. violence in it. You're kind of like, I winced probably about three or four times watching it. I was like, oh, yeah, like, like rips on. off a man's head and puts it on a pike, you know, like that yeah. kind of stuff. But it's also got this sort of emphasis on mood over story, and I, I think kind of art house kind of fans will get a kick out of it. And it's also under 90 minutes long, which is, you don't really tend to expect for these kind of, like, mi- slow medieval epics. Yeah. Um, oh, like, it's it, it just kind of, uh, it feels longer than it actually is. And when I, when I saw it, it was, like, 95 minutes, I was like, it did not feel like 95 minutes at all. No, not at all. I feel like we've been talking for ages, Andrew. Do you want to maybe talk about Casino Royale? Yeah, I'll jump in with that, sure. Yeah. And yes. so, Mads Mikkelsen plays Le Chief, a private banker and financier of international terrorism. After his investment in airline Skyfleet is tanked by MI6 agent 007, aka James Bond, aka Daniel Craig, Le Chief sets up a high-stakes poker game to win back the $100 million he owes to Ugandan rebels. Bond enters, hoping to bankrupt Le Chief and force him to turn traitor. At the Casino Royale in Montenegro, a high-stakes game begins. You know, I never understood all these elaborate tortures. It's the simplest thing to cause more pain than a man can possibly endure. And of course, it's it's not only the immediate agony, but the knowledge that if you do not yield soon enough, there will be little left to identify you as a man. The only question remains, 
will you yield in time? I want the money. Yeah, so it's hard to think of a better Bond villain than one who deals with, like, super complex money schemes and gambles and terrorists just for the sheer joy of it, basically. And while acting like he's on, like, a Sunday walk or something, dresses like he's attending an anime (laughs) funeral, has a gammy eye that cries blood. Like, there's... Like, Dr. No has metal hands. Largo has an eye patch. (laughs) Fuck off. Give me Le Chief any day, you know? I think it's, like, outside of Hannibal Lecter, it's, like, Le Chiffre is is Maz Mikkelsen's, like, best villain role. Mm. And I think it's because, like, for a lot of the film, he's, like, this cool, calm, and collected individual. Even when he's he's being threatened by uh, the Ugandan rebel Obano, your man, Obano's about to, like, cut off his girlfriend's arm with a machete. He's, like, he's totally cool and calm. And it's only when, it's only when he's being beaten at what he's good at by, uh, in, in a poker game, by Bond, who he sees as this, like, this brutish, violent thug in a tuxedo who just so happens to have, like, the weight of the British government behind him. And it's only then that he really starts to lose his cool. And Nicholson, like, he's very good at being subdued, um, but he also has this hidden menace and, like, restrained rage he's able to unleash. You see it in, like, Valhalla Rising, obviously, and uh, in certain scenes in Hannibal and stuff like that. And obviously later on, uh, Casino Royale, when he's whipping um, Bond in the balls with a piece of knotted rope, it turns into like this kind of sadistic fury. Where where is this film going to go from here? Um, And I think that that specific thing that Mads has, that like brand of like unrestrained violence is something that very few directors know how to use and even fewer know how to use it well. I, at, this, at this point, like he reveals himself to be as brutal as Bond because I suppose he justified because Bond has like pushed him to the edge with his um, him oh, I'm better than you, rich yeah. boy. And um, I think the only the one area the film falls down falls down like it's Casino Royale is like insane. It's like one of the best action movies of the two thousands when in a period when like action movies weren't good um, for that little while. Like it was all Transformers or Taken. Or not that not the Taken's not good, but like they all they were all like fucking over edited. Whereas this is like starts off with like a a, bla- a totally black and white sequence where he's smashing this man to pieces in a bathroom, yeah. and then it cut, jumps to free running through this. I think it's Madagascar or Morocco or some some. I think it's Madagascar. Yeah, it's Madagascar. Yeah, be- to this day, it's one of the best. The, like yeah, yeah, it's so good. Opening action sequences and put on film. And then, like, there's a little bit of downtime, and then all of a sudden you're in Miami airport, and he's fucking driving an oil tanker (laughs) through a plane or some shit like that, and you're like, this is insane to be able to see this in 2006 or whatever, Mm. and the one area, like, it's, and the film is doing really, really well, up to the point where Mickelson is swinging a rope, and... Daniel Craig is like, to the left, to the left! (laughs) (laughs) What a bit of an itch! Uh, And then the fucking no one villain Mr. White comes in and shoots Mickelson in the head shoots the chief in the head and you're like okay where's the movie going to go from here and it's like after that it's just not as good mm-hmm. you know I think that's that's the one area the movie falls down I, I like the like Bond's Vesper Lynn's you know, the Eva Green plotline I think that's good mm-hmm. but it would it would have been better had it been you know Mickelson like locking her in a lift and drowning her instead of this guy who we've never seen before who also happens to have only one working eye. What I love about Le Chiffre as an antagonist in the Bond films is that he's so much more than the um, man in the, the armchair stroking the cat or the mm-hmm. man with the metal hands. Like He's never really ahead of the curve. He's a guy who's at his 
final straw and is doing any means necessary to get on top and Bond is almost like the the monkey wrench in the operation that's like the Skyfield operation yeah. doesn't go ahead and it's like okay I have to go to Casino Royale and earn all this money and that like you said it all kind of culminates in this kind of brutish violence where he knows that he's ahead of Bond when it comes to uh, intellect or mathematics but that he's kind of put into this situation in which he's kind of having to um, be something that he's not as skilled as and it even manages like with Mads's like sinister veneer and like the way he's able to uh just tell a lot by his face and all that like he manages to turn something as simple as taking a uh, an inhale of an inhaler like kind of threatening yeah there's platinum plated a platinum inhaler, like, inhaler that? Like, yeah. <laughs> how much do those cost and like it'd almost make you want like a, an uncut gem style movie but where le Chief is the protagonist yeah. and Bond is just like this kind of background villain or whatever <laughs> Mads Mikkelsen as Adam Sanders' character. <laughs> yeah, like, Lashif is walking down a corridor and, like, the door to the fire escape where Bond is, like, strangling this this Ugandan rebel is, is just, just happening off in the background. Considering the film they made before that was, like, one of the Pierce Brosnan ones, I think it was Die Another Day, where, yeah, which was, was so goofy about, like, a laser, like, trying to hit the planet. And now you have, like, the opening scene which Bond is drowning a guy in a sink. You're like... Mm. it's all, It reminds me of, like, that Eric Andre sketch where it's like, this isn't your granddad's monologue. It's like, this isn't your granddad's <laughs> Bond movie. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I think it's um, it still holds up to this all these years later. Like, I think it is one of the... Probably one of the best Bond films, if not, like, yeah. one of the top five such a shame we had to wait six years for Skyfall after that. And it feels like we're waiting six years for the new, the new one that's coming out. We probably have. It. This, you could tell me we have been, and I believe you. I haven't seen Casino Royale in years. I'm kind of saving it for when we do Eva Green on the pod, but you're really making Ooh. me want to watch it. It's definitely worth a watch. It was a joy to revisit it again like in, for the preparation for this. Am I okay to talk about uh, Green Butchers? Let's do it. Go for it. Yeah, uh, Green Butchers is written and directed by Anders Thomas Jensen, uh, to which Mickelson is a frequent collaborator, and he directed Riders of Justice as well, which we can talk about later. But um, Mickelson plays Fend, an orphan whose parents died when he was young, who was bullied throughout his younger life, and he's a person who never felt love, which has made him, as an adult, quite unsociable, awkward serious and kind of an asshole frankly uh he's introduced in the movie slapping his fiance in the hand with a spatula after she tries to take some food off the grill he's barbecuing and uh you know pretty soon after she leaves him and uh, he's a butcher who works for this jerk who constantly belittles him so he and another colleague played by Nikolaj lee cass who's in riders of justice as well he's the guy who sean thinks looks like seth rogan in steve jobs <laughs> um, but they decide to set up a, a rival butcher shop together um However, an electrician they hire accidentally gets locked in the meat cooling area and freezes to death. And panicking, Sven ends up serving the electrician to the customers, calling the meat uh, Sven's Chicky Wickies. And the customers absolutely love it and want more. They sell like hotcakes and feeling appreciated for the first time, Sven decides to keep locking people in his freezer to serve. And uh, yeah, this is a very funny dark comedy. And I wanted to talk about it specifically because I feel like when, you know, Mickelson shows up in an American movie, he's always some variation on the same character. And like, while occasionally that can be really good, like in Casino Royale, like I think over time it's, it's become a little watered down. And uh, like the critic A.O. Scott um, said that in the Hollywood scene, Mickelson has become a reliable character actor with an intriguing mug, but stated that on the domestic front, he is something else, a star, an axiom, a face of the resurgent Danish cinema. And I feel like watching mm-hmm. these Danish films, you start to see how much of a comedian he truly is and uh, something you might not see if you've only watched like Doctor Strange or Rogue One or Three Musketeers. And 
he's so different in Green Butchers and just really disappears into his character because in real life Mickelson's a gorgeous man but they, they really take mm. away his attractiveness to make him seem like an ordinary person you might see in the street but someone who also appears kind of unsettling I think the most striking thing is that they give him this hair piece where he has a receding hairline except the front oh, half no. the front <laughs> half of his hair is completely bald to a point but then he has just a, a normal full head of hair and it makes it look oh. like he has a huge forehead and then, Would you do that to the most handsome man in Denmark? <laughs> and then he, he looks very sickly in the movie. Like, he's very skinny. He's got bad skin. He's always sweaty. And people are always calling him Sweaty Sven. And in terms of the character himself, he's very broad. He, he's terrible at reading situations. He has, like, a lot of misplaced confidence and is then quite mean when things don't go his way. Like, when his fiance breaks up with him, they're in a car. And he gets out to go to work. And he doesn't accept that it's over. And he's like, yeah, let's see you drive off. Or is it just an empty threat? And she just immediately drives off. <laughs> and he's just declared dejected. And then he, he also hires a marching band for the opening of his butchers. And then no one shows up. And the band are like, can we go? It's been two hours. And he's like, fine, saw off with that racket. <laughs> he's a very entertaining to watch jerk. But I, but I think what makes the movie interesting is that it could be this like schlocky birth of a serial killer villain origin type story. But it, it's not. Because for one thing, there's very little violence with the emphasis more being on this idea that people who aren't shown affection don't know how to give it. And there's this metaphor in the movie about plants, you know, like a supporting character has a greenhouse with all these like flourished plants. And he says like they need light and warmth to grow. And that's another thing about these Danish movies that we watch for this, like all the symbolism and little details are very rich. And uh, but on Mikkelsen, I, d- I don't think that message would hit as hard were it not for the actor bringing a, a surprising amount of pathos to Sven, you know, this person who does monstrous things. This is great heart to heart scene between Sven and his butcher friend, who is very much against the killing, but has his own demons too. And Sven, have, after having his first successful day in the butchers, you know, selling the electrician human meat, describes how he was beaten up every day in school and how he was hit with, and I quote, planks of wood, torches, bicycle pumps, belts. And that, though he's fully aware that he's not the most charming of personalities, he, he's afraid of people. And that's where his kind of assholey nature comes from. And he tells his friend, like, I've never been loved, but what I felt behind the counter today, it was fantastic. And there's a twisted horror movie logic to it, but Mickelson gives it real weight because you, you see this guy who's been such a jerk to people out of fear being vulnerable and finally open up and he kind of, he's trying to hold back the tears. And it does make you all be sympathetic for this madman and um spoilers but what's also great about green butchers i think it's also the case with writers of justice to an extent is that it never gets too bogged down in plot mechanics it, it, it's really all about character growth to the extent that at the end of the movie sven realizes it wasn't the human meat that people liked it was the marinade he made that no one had to die for and he's like ah i don't have to kill anymore they like me for me and then that's just the end of the movie like he never gets caught <laughs> he just <laughs> learns that he can be likable whereas i think in an american movie it would be the opposite like he would get his comeuppance but wouldn't learn the lesson and i, and I actually think it's a very good message that actually feels kind of woven into the fabric of the film as opposed to tacked on because mickelson is putting in that work you know is his performance like really over the top or does it does he really go for like the eccentric nature or is, does he still have like that element that we've kind of known Mads for where it's like it's less in what he says but more of like how he doesn't say it's a bit like writers of justice where the character is very big and broad but Mads is sort of playing it like he was be a real person but also with a kind of a touch of sort of dry comedy where like a lot of his line deliveries are they kind of sneak up with you sneak up with you and how funny they are 
Uh, yeah. But he's not like going like, ha ha ha, they're in my freezer. You know, like he's not like <laughs> That's what I was <laughs> Jeffrey Combs in like Reanimator, right? Like you know, which is fun, but it, but it, it, it's a little bit more uh, authentic, I think. Do you want to uh, maybe talk about Riders of Justice now then since we're yes. on Gen Yeah, that's a good through line, yeah. Mads Mikkelsen plays Marcus, a stoic, emotionally closed off soldier serving in Afghanistan who is called home to take care for his daughter Matilda uh, after his wife dies in a train crash. Three statisticians, Otto, Nikolai V. Kass, Lennart, Lars Brigman, and Emin Taylor, Nicholas Bro, get in contact with Marcus and inform him that the train crash was no accident, but instead an assassination designed to kill a witness due to testify against the biker gang Riders of Justice. The four men set off on a course of revenge that, you know, it goes to goes to places I never expected it going to. I think that's what I really enjoyed about it, that it's a film yeah. that you can't really, like, pin down into one specific genre. Like, it, it, yeah, it definitely reminded me a lot of, like, something by the Coen brothers, that it was very, mm. yeah, when it yeah. needed to be dramatic, like, it didn't feel as if it was contradicting, like, all the funny moments that had preceded it but um yeah I, like because i remember watching the trailer and thinking it was going to be like a, a funny heist movie but then when i was watching it i was i was very compelled by like the um the father-daughter relationship but at the same mm. time there was all the quirky and like insane nature of the rest of the men who were joining them for their mission to take down yeah. the uh the writers of justice i think yeah i think that's where because i went into this movie completely blind and i guess i guess i was kind of like i'd seen the poster and it's like mad's and his daughter, and then the three guys, and it's like, okay, so this is like, I don't know, this is like if um, uh, Mulder's nerds in in the X-Files teamed up with him to, like, get revenge on fucking Scully's murder or something, I don't know. Um, <laughs> this is why I don't write scripts. Um, but I think every character in this movie has, like, th- this rich inner life, uh, even if most of those inner lives are pretty depressing, and I think that's yeah. what, like just makes that movie this movie work so so well because the plot is like despite all the complicated statistics being thrown about and stuff like that it's a pretty simple plot that's really good at like hiding a lot of uh, emotionally complex like themes and stuff mm. and it's it's in the characters that those themes come out the best because um for one mads for instance his character marcus is a man stuck in a rut essentially yeah. um, like he's a soldier he's emotionally closed off he, he can only talk to his daughter uh, in terms of like helping her lose weight or um, school or whatever yeah. he won't talk about the grief he feels for his dead wife or how she's getting on and like most of his reactions to like Emma Taylor or uh, Lenart or um, the other guy uh, <laughs> Seth Rogen um, <laughs> he's like Otto, yeah, is like he's he's kind of like what nightmare sitcom plot has my life become most of the time? That's it. he's just he's like the straight man of the group, I guess, the unwilling straight man. It, and it's funny with like Mads how with his character, like he's definitely someone who's gone by routines and drills like so much, mm. like haven't been in the army. But when it comes yeah. to something as simple as like preparing a meal for his daughter or like an emotional connection, like he just struggles completely. Mm. Yeah. So yeah. Like, he's a man who's been taking out of his strict didactic routine and placed back into normal life and for him that's he's almost like a fish out of water he's like yeah how do i do this communication thing like how do i do this this dad thing (laughs) yeah it's like the world is kind of changing around him like the whole idea of what a man is and like what masculinity means is it's like it's obviously very fixed within the army but outside of that it's all very very different like the three the three guys he teams up with are like not uh what you would call like masculine men in any real sense of the word yeah. um 
and like same, same, the same with uh, his daughter Matilda's boyfriend. He's like he's he's not what you'd call like a, a manly man either. Really, like he rides a moped. He has like uh, his hair is dyed blue. He paints his nails. He has a cooking like blog, doesn't he? As well, he has a cooking. Yeah, something <laughs> like that. He's like a, he's like an emo kid, yeah. a very sensitive emo kid who's uh, who's that Mads can't see is treating is actually treating his daughter very well. And I think like only by accepting the fact that it's not the world that needs to change, it's him. Is he like capable of like moving beyond? Um, the rock bottom he has hit basically he's only able, he can only go up from here he can either die or you know go up from yeah. here and the, i think it is uh, without spoiling too much i think it is nice that he accepts that he needs to change before mm-hmm. because the world isn't going to i definitely like that he comes to terms with that not everything is by the numbers that like life is very yeah. spontaneous and goes yeah. all over the place and like again without spoiling too much there's a moment where it kind of mads character starts to realize that and the reaction, like, you, you can tell, like, in that reaction that it's a, a boiling point of a lot of other issues that had kind of been taking place before the events that we had seen in the film, mm. and which just makes yeah. it all the more powerful. Yeah, like, he's, it's like he's fighting against the world, and the world just kind of goes, slaps it back down, essentially. Yeah, and I think as well that, you know, he, he's playing another brooding, again, like, Valorizer, force of nature, figure exacting vengeance. And he, he seems like he'd be booked up for the part. He's also rocking a similar beard to Joaquin Phoenix in You Were Never Really Here, which I, I think makes him look even more kind of grave and imposing. But I think it's a part that in an American movie would be played by, like, Statham or The Rock or, like, back in the day, like, Charles Bronson or Lee Marvin, like, big men. But then, mm. like... I think what this movie is really about is it's sort of this wacky workplace comedy about all these odd maths nerds who have these very funny tics but also have this trauma in their past and they use stats to try and rationalize and understand why bad things happen to them. And I think while Marcus keeps them around for their kind of tech skills and their ability to find out about this biker gang, they end up forming this strange family because Marcus is messed up too, which I, I think is why you employ Mads in the part because I think a lot of American movies like you're John Wicks, you're taken idolize revenge and celebrate men who sort of take matters into their own hands and kill people and i i get it because it's compelling and exciting and it's it's sort of that thing of like what would you do for your family if someone took them away <laughs> and a lot of those movies i like but i think it, that's writer's justice isn't that like it's kind of what gets viewers into the movie at first but it's pretty soon you realize that mickelson is very damaged and not just because his wife died like in general he just seems like someone who can't deal with his emotions and his, his go-to action when overcome with like negative emotions is just anger and violence like it's probably why you joined the army and you know why you do want him to get the people who killed his wife it's pretty shocking when he punches his daughter's teenage boyfriend in the face <laughs> after yeah. all he yeah. said was yeah. you know like you should go easy on her and then marcus when marcus was giving out to her for staying out too late and it, it's pretty shocking later when he casually punches Otto and throws him out of the car <laughs> when um in a later scene and uh, i think you know i think sean mentioned like over the course of the movie with its twists and turns, is like all the characters come to realize that you can't control life. You you can't always make sense of it. Sometimes a coincidence is just a coincidence. And in that moment, like Mads, his Marcus realizes that he like smashes up his bathroom. He smashes his face in the mirror, and it's really intense, like great scene. But the whole movie is this de facto family realizing, and that includes like Marcus's daughter as well, that like bad things happen for no reason sometimes. And instead of to quote the empty man indicting the cosmos you sort of just have to learn to deal with it and make the best of the situation which is an oddly you know nice message for a movie which main plot is let's kill a bunch of evil bikers <laughs> you know? yeah it's like it's one of the weirder kind of i suppose found family 
uh, versions of that trope uh, I've seen because it's like a soldier, three statisticians, his teenage daughter, her boyfriend, and a Ukrainian male prostitute that they rescue. <laughs> yeah. In every family, <laughs> yeah. But, but I think like, every family has one. Like Green uh, Butchers as well. Like this, I think that like the themes are very well woven into the movie. This idea of chance and coincidence is it's there in the kind of fairy tale esque prologue and epilogue with the bike. And um, I think with Mickelson, you could have hired someone who is more of a straightforward bruiser, but I think you'd lose something because I think the movie is deconstructing the action man, you know, the hard man, and showing that if a person acted like that in real life, how messed up it would be. And so I think he not only is he like great doing like intense action scenes, and there's that amazing scene where the camera's on his face as he goes to walk away, but then turns to approach one of the people he thinks killed yeah. his wife, and just like snaps his neck very suddenly, and like you gasp, like it. But I think he's yeah. also good at portraying how kind of volatile that character is outside of those life and death situations. But then, like, it's, he's also very dry in the movie, too. And, like, well, I think Nicholas Bro and Lars Bergman, um, who are hysterical in this movie, get the lion's share of the laughs. Like, there, there's, like, funny stuff with Mickelson. Like, that bit at the... Like, this is a bit of a mild spoiler, but in the scene at the end, that feels a bit like a fairy tale ending when, like, Mickelson and his new family and the Matsner, they're all having Christmas dinner, and it's very warm and lovely. And there's, like, a sharp cut to him looking so severe, but in the most, like, beautiful, pristine Christmas jumper. And he's, like, I drinking cocoa. And it feels like a meme in waiting. smiling when I saw that. Just the, the perfect image. Yeah. <laughs> and taking the sip out of the Christmas mug, I was like... Yeah. Oh, it's so it's one for the Christmas card. <laughs> Am I okay to talk about After the Wedding, another Danish movie? Yeah. After the Wedding is directed by Suzanne Beer, who's a really underrated director. Um, she came to international recognition with Open Hearts, another very good movie with Mickelson that was made under the Dogma 95 rules. And then after that, she directed two movies that were remade in America, Brothers and After the Wedding. And then in a career pivot, helmed Bird Box with Sandra Bullock. And then directed... Oh, what? And directed all the episodes of oh The Night God. Manager and The Undoing recently. So she's had this very cool... Re- I didn't know she did Bird Box. That's mad. Yeah, and I, I like I quite like Bird Box. And I think what's interesting about it is that she is making choices. <laughs> that movie wouldn't be so meme-worthy if it wasn't for Suzanne Beer. But in After the Wedding, Mickelson plays Jacob, a Danish man who has turned his back on Denmark and runs an orphanage in Bombay in India. And um, this rich Danish man named Jorgen says he wants to invest in the orphanage but would like to meet Jacob before committing to anything. While Jacob doesn't want to leave the orphanage and this little Indian boy named Pramrod who he has taken care of since birth, he, the place needs the cash, so he goes. And so he, he reads, meets this rich man in Denmark who basically says, I like your project, but I want to go over something, some things, you know, and Jorgen's daughters happens to be getting married that weekend and he invites Jacob to the wedding and Jacob goes thinking, it might help get the money. However, while, while there, he realizes that the rich man's wife, Helena, who's played by Sidzi Babette Knudsen, who people may know from Borgen and the Duke of Burgundy, um, she's his ex-lover and that he is the biological father of the young woman who's getting married. Um, this is a movie I wish there was more of because it's it's like a melodrama, but it's very you know it's very dramatic and emotional. It has twists, but it's for adults and like nothing is simplified and everything feels rooted in reality. The characters are all three dimensional and complex, and it, it suddenly builds to this kind of intriguing moral dilemma, which questions you know should Jacob return to helping kids in India and caring for Pramrod who is planning to adopt, or does he stay in Denmark and take care of his daughter? he never knew existed and this woman who might have been the love of his life who, who seemed like they're going to need him and uh, i think the way the movie handles that like seemingly impossible dilemma is very satisfying but like authentically messy and uh funnily enough the script is actually written by jensen who made green butchers and writers of justice oh. too and it feels very different to those movies it's a lot less tongue-in-cheek 
Um, and Beer also directs the hell out of it as well. Like it's not a Dogma ninety five movie, but it was shot on digital and has that sort of fluid, handheld, intimate feel of those movies. And uh, in terms of Nixon's performance, he's playing this person who was formerly like a bit of a wild man when he was younger. He was always drunk. Helena says they were in this passionate sort of toxic relationship. And in the years that have passed since their bitter breakup, you can tell Jacob is actively working to be a better, more responsible person. And he's running this orphanage in India. Being in Denmark and being confronted with the chaos he left in his wake as a young man seems to bring back all those emotions, both good and bad, he had repressed or forgotten. Mixon plays that so well, and his energy in the opening section of the film with Jorgen and at the wedding before the big reveal is kind of polite, but with a tinge of, can we get this over with? <laughs> but then once there's this kind of big revelation, he's a lot more kind of animated and passionate and you know filled with emotion. Also, this is a movie that doesn't really spell anything out for viewers in like an overly explicit sort of plot, exposition-y way. It trusts that the actors can convey what the audience needs to know with just a look, which is always better, I think. So, you know, when Knudsen and Nick Mickelson's character see each other at first at the wedding, it isn't said immediately that they dated and had this fight relationship, but you can just see it in the sort of like awkward but loving smirks they give each other that there's like an intimacy there. Then when, you know, Knudsen's daughter makes a speech at the wedding where she says like, well, Jorgen may not be her biological father, she wouldn't want anyone else but him to be her dad you, you just see Mickelson's eyes widen like the ground has fallen out from under him because he knows that he's the daddy and um, <laughs> there's another great scene where he and his daughter meet up and she shows like a picture book with photos of her as a child and as they scroll through the photos you can see how sad and hurt Jacob is that he's missed so much of her life but he tries to conceal that from her and it's all unsaid and there's another bit where basically he makes a decision about that dilemma I mentioned and he seems upset and kind of regretful but later there's a moment where upon witnessing something it, it seems like he's come to terms with his decision, like he's made the right choice, he feels. And uh, again, it's it's all like unsaid. And you know, I, I want to give more detail about this movie away, but I don't want to spoil things because it, it's, a, it's a movie with twists. And uh, but, it, but it's one that has a lot of like subtle, powerful moments. And I think people should check it out. It's, it's really when you, were, when you were mentioning there about um, him being able to convey emotion without like saying too much or just by with a look, like I think that's definitely like where his dancer background comes into play because I imagine he was at one point in his career. He, when they were when he was learning to be a dancer they were told to convey a lot without like saying too much and like it's all through movement or facial expression so i think that's mm. going to help with his roles in which he's had to convey so much with, with saying so little as you heard in the intro this show is part of the headstuff podcast network ireland's largest network of independent podcasts there's plenty of other great shows to check out on the network here's a taster of one Hello, Joe Rooney here. Back in 2015, I recorded my first pod rooney And since then, I've been chatting to people that I meet throughout my travels, here and there, all over the world, including Sean Locke, Mary Coughlin, Frank Kelly, Joanne McAnally, Owen Colgan, Shazia Mertza, Aidan Gillen and Kocha Reardon, but loads of people you'd never heard of who have very interesting tales to tell, including the sadly no longer with us Boston-based comedian, Barry Crimmins, who led a crusade against images of child abuse on the internet. Tracy Carroll, whose daughter Willow has the highest grade of cerebral palsy. Drada Homeless Aid. Christine Volset, a Norwegian singer-documentary maker who ended up hanging out with the young lads in inner city Dublin and riding bareback on a horse through the city streets. All these very interesting tales to tell, and all you have to do is skip the first six minutes of me talking rubbish. That's Potteroni. I Know That Face are also delighted to finally get to tell listeners about Headstuff Plus. Headstuff Plus is the one-stop shop for everything on the Headstuff Podcast Network, Ireland's largest podcast network and the one to which I Know That Face belongs. 
If you're a fan of I Know That Face or any other shows on the network, become a member of Headstuff Plus and get bonus episodes of Headstuff Shows, other exclusive content, merchandise, early access to live events, and lots more. We here at I Know That Face have already recorded a handful of bonus episodes where myself and Andrew talk about more current news and releases in the world of film and TV. But also in the future, we have plans for more actor-themed series as well, along with releasing episode outtakes, accompanying articles, etc., all for Headstuff Plus subscribers. To sign up to Headstuff Plus, it's just €5 plus fat per month. When you sign up, no matter what show or shows you are supporting, you still get access to everything, all the bonus material for all the podcasts on the network. A lot of great podcasts. Plus, by doing so, you'll be supporting I Know The Face to bring you more top material. For all the details and to sign up, visit headstuffpodcasts.com. And now, back to the show. Like, I thought I had gone kind of deep with the Danish movies, and I thought the news <laughs> would be going more for the American stuff. But, Sean, like, you told me you watched The Salvation, Royal Affair, and The Hunt. Uh... I did, yeah, yeah. I did all the for this. Man of my word. I've only seen out of those The Salvation, which I quite like. It's kind of a cool Western. It's definitely, like, at times it can feel a bit like they're te- ticking the criteria for what we should have in a Western film. Like, you have... Mads Mikkelsen's character, who's a Dane who's coming to America, but his wife and child are killed essentially by the brother of Jeffrey Dean Morgan's character, uh, Donahue. You see that Mads Mikkelsen's character, like he's very subdued. Like his his wife and child don't speak English, but he he does speak English. It's a very like powerful, like straightforward, like Western tale. Uh, and Mads plays that very like silent protagonist role very well. Like he's the the guy who doesn't spout a lot of dialogue, but like when it comes to like shooting the gun, like he's a like a skilled marksman, and it's like it's it's a very like simple revenge tale, but like there's a a great amount of like dramatic uh, weight to it as well. Like there's the moment where Mads is um, burying his wife and child, like it could be this big moment where it's like him holding his wife and like screaming to the heavens, and like the rain pours down. But it's um, the way they go about it, like it feels very, um, and you see it throughout. You can see a man who's just been bottling up so much. That when it gets to a certain point in the film, you can see it's just become too much for him. And also, Eva Green, a like, shout out to her, who's in the film as well, who plays a... Uh, she's the girlfriend of Jeffrey Dean Morgan's brother's character, who ha- has had her tongue come out and is a complete mute. And she has to do the convey so much as well without speaking. And you can see it in her face. You can look at a woman who's just... She, you see a point in her face, like, I've just gone down the wrong path. Like, what am I doing here? <laughs> and then you have something like A Royal Affair, it's a, a, ta- a tale apparently that's told in a lot of uh, schools in Denmark. It's the tale of um, Princess Caroline and her relationship with um, Dr. Johan Sturens, who is Mads Mikkelsen's character. I thought while watching it, I thought it was going to be one of those period dramas. Like, I'm not a big fan of that genre just because I feel like when you're seeing them, it comes with a lot of uh, historical context. Like, you need to know a lot about like what was actually going on at the time but I think with this film like at its core it's mainly a tale about I think the royal affair extends beyond the affair she's having with the doctor from her husband but it's mainly about how Christian who's she is meant to marry who's this very kind of immature he's a man who's suffering from they they, they don't specify specifically what, he, what he's suffering from but it's a uh, he has like mental health issues and he's very like childlike it's all he's almost like a, a Joffrey character in a sense like, what would happen if you put this, like, 11-year-old in, a, in an extreme position of power? And Mads Mikkelsen's character is, like, he's a figure of the Enlightenment, and he wants to, um, he believes that uh, this is how things should be run. And he's telling the Christian, like, he's kind of, like, whispering in his ear in the courts and kind of shifting the pieces into motion. 
and then at the same time he's having an affair with his wife and they end up fathering a child but they have to kind of they have to like hide that away from people and show like oh no Christian and Caroline have this very romantic relationship even though he's going off and he's getting with like a lot a lot of prostitutes <laughs> and while Caroline and uh, Johan are having this very like deep and meaningful relationship where they're both like into literature they're both they both love the arts they both want freedom and all that but you can see a point in which they, they do a great job in that film of like tackling how the public can get a hold of certain situations and then when it's revealed that Mads Mikkelsen's character is a German doctor then he's seen as a traitor of the state and spoiler as he's being led to be executed there's a bit where he's being walked in a crowd and they're booing him and like throwing things at him and Mads looking around going I am one of you I am one of you and it's just absolutely heartbreaking because this man who just want, believed that he had an idea how, how things should this be this man who just wanted to sleep with the king's wife <laughs> I mean I was, the, the entire time I was watching it I was thinking when Alicia Vikander was getting with Mads I was like can you blame her <laughs> can you blame her <laughs> two hot people two hot people yeah and the weirdest thing about it is that the director of that Nicolaj Arcel would then go on to make The Dark Tower. Which I think Jensen co-wrote, the guy who made Right. Which is weird because well. like he, he he showed in this film that he has a good handling of like the dramatic material and all that. But like The Dark Tower just seems like a film that was like just chopped and screwed and mismatched around and just like sandwiched like I don't know how many ever like volumes of the novels into one film mm-hmm. and it just doesn't feel like it you can consider this like one person's singular vision. Yeah, that, I, I don't really blame them for that. That feels like something that was taken away from them. But it's just crazy to think that they have this kind of, like, Stephen King has made these sort of Lord of the Rings-esque books with loads of this lore, and then they're like, oh, we'll just give it to the Danish New Wave guys. They'll, they'll make something normal. And you're like, why, why would you expect that? It's mad. But I, re- I really enjoyed it, and I think um, uh, I think it was nominated for Best uh, International Feature at the Oscars, but I thought there was some awards across the board. I, think, I thought Alicia Vikander could have got a Supporting Actress nomination and Maybe even Mads. But I've said that like quite a few times that Mads, like some, some of his performances, I'm like, should have been nominated, but didn't. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking, Andrew, do you want to maybe talk about Hannibal and then to wrap, we can do maybe the hunt and another round together? Mads Mikkelsen plays Hannibal Lecter, a highly trained psychiatrist with a fondness for classical art, music and literature, as well as being an incredibly cultured gourmand and talented chef. He's also a serial killer and cannibal. When he's asked to supervise FBI profiler Will Graham, played by Hugh Dancy, Lecter finds himself drawn to the man who may be his greatest enemy or a kindred spirit. I'm very careful about what I put into my body, which means I end up preparing most meals myself. A little protein scramble to start the day. Some eggs, some sausage. That's delicious, thank you. My pleasure. I would apologize for my analytical ambush, but I know I will soon be apologizing again and you'll tire of that eventually, so I have to consider using apologies barely. Just keep it professional. Oh, we could socialize like adults. God forbid we become friendly. I don't find you that interesting. You will. Yeah, so like Hannibal, uh, in case people don't know, is was like a very high class kind of police procedural that was very well liked before its time. Like streaming was like it, streaming caught on like I think in twenty fourteen maybe, and then Hannibal ended with season three in twenty fifteen. There, there's always they're always talking about like a revival or whatever, but we'll see about that. But 
it, it's just one of those shows that like uh, something like Community or something like that that was very very popular before its time but just wasn't designed for network TV even though that's the only thing it could have been designed for at the time mm. uh, like this, like Hannibal it's like a network TV show is produced by NBC and it's some of the highest quality production I've ever seen on a TV show but like there's like attention is just lavished on nearly every aspect of it like Hannibal's like Hannibal Lecter's suits are incredible there's like a <laughs> three different ones each episode and they're all these like double-breasted three-piece suits with like massively like win- massive Windsor knot ties and like shirts from like presumably some Parisian fashion house made to order and it's also a show that really let its characters breathe and kind of find the relationships between each of them before it ever kind of jumped into any kind of major plot twists like the, the first season is, for much of it is mostly just um kind of case of the week stuff where um, Will Graham and Hannibal Lecter and uh, Jack Crawford who's played by a really good Lawrence Fishburne in this he, is, he gets a really good um, look in in this episode in, not this episode in the series um, and like most of the most of the first season is just them fine looking at cases and then the mysterious like I think it's the Chesapeake Ripper is the name of the serial killer who is actually Hannibal Lecter but no one knows that uh, and you never really see him like it never shows him committing any murders it just shows him like preparing some like uh, very de- delicious looking meal for his friends and then like the first time he has Jack Crawford over the di- over to his house uh, he says at one point it's like next time bring the wife I'd love to have you both for dinner oh, cool. or at another point it's like it's always nice to have an old friend for dinner it's like he can't keep getting away with this <laughs> his name is Hannibal but it's yeah, so exactly. it's so beautifully prepared you just see all the food laid out and you're like oh god that looks gorgeous and then you realise that's probably someone's leg yeah exactly yeah um I think the benefit of having like Mickelson's version of the show of of the character is that well, first of all, he's, he plays him like he's Satan himself, like he's nothing <laughs> like Brian Cox or Anthony Hopkins. And I think the thing with like Brian Cox or Anthony Hopkins um, playing Hannibal is that aside from I think Hannibal is the one where he's he's is the movie where he's escaped and yeah. uh, crazy Julianne movie. Norris Clary Starling is, is after him. Yeah, uh, like you, we never really see Hannibal. Before he was in prison, mm. whereas this show gives us the first season and a half, or first two seasons, two and a half seasons even, sorry, of um, the show show us how this man lived, and like talk about decadent, decadent but um, <laughs> he lived re- very well, and it's just nice to see um, this guy who's operating at the peak of his powers socially and professionally, but yet he like he has everything any normal person could want. But he's still compelled to kill and eat people he finds rude or unpleasant. Yeah, it's this like perfectly made human mask over like something that uh, most people, most people, most characters in the series refuse to define him as like a sociopath or a psychopath because mm-hmm. he just doesn't fit any of the m- most of the criteria. And like that, that kind of human mask is perfect, and it only uh, kind of slips when he's forced to like defend himself in like uh, like that incredible fight scene that's bookends season two. Um, the season two, yeah, and it's like just letting a lion out of its cage, basically, because he's just blank faced as he's like strangling Jack Crawford with his tie or like stabbing Will Graham in the side or whatever, and it ends on a massive. That season ends on a massive cliffhanger, but like it's it rules. It's, it's so good. Yeah. yeah and I'm so annoyed we didn't get more of it sorry yeah. I, I found with uh, Hugh Darcy Hugh Darcy Dancy. who plays uh, Dancy uh, Will Graham 
I found that it's more about like him and his uh, extreme empathy for these serial killers, and almost like when you said it's like each episode is like a case of the week where it's like totem poles being made of corpses or like a violin being like shoved into someone's body. But I, I agree with you when you said that it's like Hannibal believes that what he is doing is right in a way that he's only killing people he believes are extremely rude and you kind of see like there's the funny moment of that where he has the guy Dan Fogler's character like in the um the office where he's like crying and he's like telling him the lion is not in the office like he, I think he's like illusioning that a lion is like in the room with him and yeah. then he's like blowing his nose and he just puts it on like the table next to him and you can see in Hamble's yeah. face like don't yeah, that's don't, what the mm, bean is there for mm, yeah. mm, mm, mm. shouldn't have done that shouldn't have done that yeah. Um, I think it was in the first season that shot of him like throwing the uh, potato in the air and like catching it on the knife. It's yeah. like apparently like it took about like twenty five takes and it's like a blooper <laughs> reel of him like missing it each time. But it's it's one of those shows you look at all the food and you're like oh it's delicious you're like that's someone's liver that's someone's spleen. But yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I thought with him like like you said it's it's a great way to see of like how Doctor Hannibal Lecter is out there in the real world because we've only seen him with. Um, Brian Cox and Anthony Hopkins almost like an animal in a cage and then you hear like stuff about Anthony Hopkins being influenced by like um, HAL 9000 that like that for the robotic delivery mm. and that great that iconic scene where she's walking down the hallway and sees all like the different criminals and then he's just like standing like bang on centre in the room hello Clarice yeah. but then with Hannibal Lecter like you can see him like he just he's a, a master manipulator how he infiltrates like social circles and how he get he kind of like He's almost like a kid in a candy shop, the way like he gets it in the FBI case. It's like, I get to like help you guys like, see all these murder crimes. Like, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sean, do you want to talk about The Hunt? Yes. This was Mads Mixon's first collaboration, I believe, with Thomas Binderberg, who would then go on to do another round, but it also worked under the Dogma 95 uh, movement of filmmaking with Lars von Trier. And that was basically like a movement in which they said, we want the sole focus to be on the performers and that we don't want any artificial elements. We don't want like artificial lighting. We don't want uh, uh, non-diegetic sound. Uh, that it has to be all on location. But then after they moved out of that movement, movement, Thomas Winterberg would go on to make films like The Hunt, which Mads Mikkelsen plays Lucas, who's a man who's works as a kindergarten teacher who has uh, divorced from his wife and has now started a relationship with another teacher working at that school. And he's a guy, it's a very like a tight knit hunting community in the town. It's like a small Danish town and everyone likes him. He's, he's a nice guy. You can tell like he's had a lot of like troubling issues in his past, but is slowly, slowly starting to carve a new path for himself. But his whole world is turned upside down when uh, a little girl in this class, who's the daughter of his best friend, uh, Theo, accuses him of indecent exposure. It's one of those films in which you would you think that the primary focus is going to be on I have to prove my innocence like I have to uh, I have to gather all the clues together to show them I'm innocent but you know from the get go Lucas is not the man who would be accused of something like this and yeah. Matt Mads said in interviews that like he would have turned this script down immediately if it was turned into a chase in which at any point he'd pull a gun on his friend and tell him I'm innocent what Mads had said in the lead to this was that he was drawn to the script because he felt a great deal of frustration reading it. That like, why isn't this man screaming to the heavens, or why isn't he going to the authorities? Or it's like, if this was in America, he would have had a lawyer, and the the whole thing would be over in like about thirty minutes. But I think it's that every character in the film is so well written that you can see every perspective they're coming from. Like his best friend Teal, who's one of the friends in another end, Tommy. Tommy. Yeah. 
you can see in his eyes it's breaking his heart to dismantle this friendship he has with his friend and there's this like recurring joke at the start uh, where he says to him uh, oh I know when you lie your eye twitches like Lucas you always tell the truth but whenever you say a lie you can't bear it like one of your eye twitches and there's a point in the film in which it's um, uh, time has surpassed and the rumours have kind of settled a bit and Lucas is like not welcome back into the community but is able to adjust back to some normal function of life and he's in the church and there's a point where he looks directly at Tio he's just it's you've probably seen on the poster it's like where he's like looking like that mm. and he's like saying to him you know I didn't do this come on man you've known me your entire life and then he's just looking at him and like Tio just refuses to look him in the eye he's looking like up he's looking down he's with his wife and then it's like a midnight mass and then the teacher says we'll bring on the school children and Clara is front and centre and she's they're singing this Christmas hymn and then all of a sudden, Lucas just starts kicking the chair. He's like looking up and he's crying. He just, like how everyone's able to just get by this while his life has been robbed. And he stands up and he goes over to Tio and he just confronts him. And he goes, look at my eye. Can you see? Can you see? And he's just like hitting him. And he's like saying, look at my eye. Uh, look at my eyes. And you're, you're just like, oh God, this is just tough to watch. But to me, that's like, this is Mads at his finest. Like this is his best performance he's ever given. Because... From the moment he's told that a child in his class has said this thing about him, he's very composed. He realizes, okay, let me just tell you why this didn't happen. But then you see how great love, like the love for all the children, all the, how that turns into great fear and then that turns into great hate in which it's kind of this element of mob mentality. There's, a, there's another heartbreaking moment where like Lucas wants to go grocery shopping and he goes into like a supermarket and he's just looking to buy like a, a can of beans, I think it is. And then the guy at the shop says, if you don't leave, I'm going to beat you up. Like, if you don't leave right now, I'm going to beat you up. And he's like, I just want my, I just want my beans. I just want my beans. And then eventually they, like, they haul him out and they start like throwing cans at his head and all that. And he's like in the co- outside the shop and they're just throwing things at him. And then Lucas, who for the most part has been very subdued, has been very calm about the whole situation, walks back into the shop with like, blood like on the side of his face and like a gash down here and goes I just want my stuff I just want my bag I just want my stuff and walks up to the shopkeeper and just headbutts him so you're kind of almost like <laughs> like yes like come Finally. on like fight back and you're like it was the one avenue in which he could like channel this frustration in which everything has been working against me and that I have an opportunity to kind of carry it all forward it's just such a beautiful film and it's um it, it right down to the end in which it's there's no clear resolution as to whether Lucas has cleared his name like it's kind of one of those things where there's a moment where spoiler where he comes into contact with Clara again and you feel like it could be this almost like the the greater evil versus the greater good like how dare you say this thing but she's a child she doesn't know any better so it's like their connection it's just like a hello Clara how are you and you can tell like it's just killing him on the inside not to say anything I think I just I I love the film. I think it's Mads's best performance. Another round is definitely way more upbeat than this film for sure. Definitely, and uh, we all watched another round together. Yeah, what a laugh! What a, <laughs> what a laugh! We actually we should say we I, we've all been drinking during this episode, so uh, <laughs> yeah. what was as it? if they haven't already. So, so. What's it? School? Skal, skal, The film that taught us no lessons. <laughs> Just us Irish people watching this and go, that's not yeah. how we do it. <laughs> <laughs> You're stopping drinking at eight. <laughs> <laughs> 
basically the plot concerns this teacher who is, a, you know, a father, a husband, and he has a successful life, but is just sort of stuck in a rut and he's just sort of become very detached and kind of on autopilot. One day he goes out to dinner with his friends and he has a bit of a quiet breakdown about feeling how his life is sort of like the best years are behind him. And his friends tell him about this philosopher who believed that uh, people were born with a uh, alcohol content in their blood that is just naturally too low. And they decide to experiment and basically drink on the job and <laughs> see if their lives feel better. Yeah, just a wonderful movie and just such a good premise and one that it, it will resonate with Irish audiences given our own kind of complicated relationship with alcohol. But um, I think what's great about this movie is how unjudgmental about, and I think honest about drinking it is, where it can be great, yeah. it can be, it's this social lubricant, it tastes great, and the movie does give you a fierce thirst, especially <laughs> those kind of... Um, absinthe cocktails that he makes with those kind of balls of ice oh my like, goodness so I was yeah, watching yeah. like what is this <laughs> once the pandemic is over you're all coming to mind and we'll we'll, we'll do it we'll reenact Skull, the, the place um, but I also think it kind of shows alcohol as being this sort of like temporary respite from your problems of your everyday but that you have to enjoy the moderation you can't like rely on that and I think that if you are going to the stage where you're drinking every day to kind of overcome your problems that the problems are still there like the alcohol is just kind of hiding it for only like a brief amount of time after the alcohol fades away you've got the hangover and you're just left with your, your yourself and definitely like it's one of those rare things in which like with especially with Mads's character Martin who's a character in which you can immediately from the get-go you can sense that he's a guy who's He's at the tr- at the, the platform and the train has left the station. But he's um, when he has that breakdown, it's so early into the film. It's it's so rare that you would have like this breakdown of a character we've barely met. But you can see that this is like almost with um, Riders of Justice is a culmination of a lot of other issues that we hadn't seen, and that this is like a last resort for him to kind of revitalize or reinvigorate any last ounce of his life, like whether it's his. Like, there's that great scene at the start with his wife where he goes, like, am I boring? And she goes, oh, when you were young, you were so exciting when we first met. And you can tell, like, it's like this man who's, he's, I, he, he just feels that, like, right now he's not living to his potential. And that's brushing off on his students because they're just unmotivated and they don't want to learn. And exam season is right around the corner. Also, like, the whole recurring thing throughout, like, you were you a jazz ballet dancer throughout? Like, oh, show us your moves. Yeah. And the whole time it's like, no, no, like, this isn't the time, this isn't time. And you can tell, like... For anyone who's seen like the advertisement for another round or has seen the posters, like it's leading to what I don't know if I would put it another round as my favorite film of the year, but it's my favorite ending of the year, hands down. Yeah, mm. because it's it's like this sort of Gene Kelly sort of singing in the rain, but kind of cool and like jazz ballet dance. But it yeah. also yeah. perfectly wraps. And up the rain the, is booze. But it wraps <laughs> up the themes of the movie so well because it sort of feels like once it's very like celebratory. In that, you know, he's like hugging his friends as he's doing it. He's doing cartwheels. He's jumping up and down. Like everyone's celebrating and dancing. But there's also a bit during it where he, you know, sits on a bench and looks out at the sea. And, you know, spoilers. but And sees the boat going by. And... Yeah, and early on in the movie, one of his friends had, you know, died out in the sea. And, you know, there's also a bit of it where he's kind of punching and kicking. And it feels a bit like he's fighting with himself. And then it ends on this sort of, like... Spo- and be- spoiler. <laughs> and, yeah, but like literally the final bit of the dance. Like it ends on this sort of ambiguous note where he's like jumping into the ocean and i think if you're pessimistic you could read that as maybe like oh he's gonna end up like his friend but i would choose to believe it as, as sort of water being kind of cleansing and rebirth and i would like to think that he you know takes on the lessons of what he learned in the movie but essentially you're watching this person go from being this sort of past it teacher who's just got no vitality and like just amazing how mads 
look so incredible all the time in real life and how like he's literally the spokesperson for Carlsberg and those ads he's so cool probably and you see him completely I think tamper down all that charisma and like really believable as uh, like like I've had a lot of great teachers and professors but there was one or two that had a similar vibe to Mads where it felt like they were just kind of going through the motions and had no sense of humor yeah I can think of a few myself (laughs) I think we might share some of those we might share some of those professors possibly possibly but um, yeah. what's interesting about the way they prepared for the movie was that Vinterberg and all the cast would all gather and drink together and just up to the stage when they started became kind of like their inhibitions became gone essentially I think you have that intimacy in that scene in the restaurant where he breaks down where it's not like a big emotional moment it's actually kind of like quiet and you know sad and mm. depressing and just to be that vulnerable with another person yeah. uh, I think it helps friends like... with the cast yeah yeah. Martin, Martin. I loved even like even with the title, like another round, it just doesn't mean like getting the the, the next round of drink. It's also like another round of life. Like it's like yeah, yeah. another opportunity or another a second chance. I also think like alcohol isn't what this movie totally is about. I think it's a kind of a, a way to get to the point it's trying to make. But I think it's about everything i think it's about like friendship but you know i think it's about art and culture the fact that this whole thing that they do in this movie this experiment is based in sort of philosophy and history and that he's a history teacher and how the Mm. that philosophy ends up kind of impacting on his lessons where he's giving these teachings about churchill and how much he drank and that gets the students more engaged and then also there's the jazz ballet and there's the music that's playing has a great soundtrack i think it's about all these like how easy it can be to be beaten down by life and you know become complacent but how these things like you know music and art and culture and food like so much emphasis in this movie about like you know the the food that they eat in the restaurants it's just this movie is about how it's easy to grow complacent in life and become trapped in a routine but you know it's like friendship food music dance literature history they're all the things that kind of make life worth living and i think it's you know feels incredibly celebratory about life which is I think all the more emotional and powerful given what its you know, co-writer and director Thomas Vinterberg was going through making the movie You know, mm-hmm. after his daughter's tragic death in a car accident and she was meant to be in the movie and the movie came from her, the daughter, telling him all about the drinking culture in Denmark. The whole movie begins with that scene of all the students on the tear. And, uh, yeah, yeah. and she, she apparently her former classmates, some of them. Yeah, true. Some of them, yeah. 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 Some of Mads' students in the class were her former classmates. And I, I, I wonder... Because we talked about The Hunt and I know some of the other Vinterberg movies are very... They tend to be a bit more darker and less um, celebratory of life. But I feel like this one was sort of a way... His way of kind of working through all the, the trauma that he was going through. I, you know, you leave I feeling kind of high. It, de- it definitely felt like it was a more... It became a more life-affirming film as they were making it. Because they were making it with um, the extreme circumstance they went through with uh, Thomas Vinterberg's daughter, Ida. But... Um, you can kind of see that with the film that it, it walks a fine line of, uh, in a way, even though the hunt is a bit is more kind of uh, life devastating than life affirming. But the way they're walking a fine line between making this a a PSA for don't drink too much, but also like a look how fun it is to like go off and drink with your friends, do a lake run, or like lock the security guard on the train, like we're having the 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 drink on on the train on the way uh, into town. But uh, like, because it shows like how fun it can be, but like especially like now in which we're living in a time in which we're kind of looking to escape and break out. And I think it was at TIFF, they, uh, Mads and Thomas Winterberg were doing a Q&A and 
Thomas Vinterberg said. Uh, oh, by the way, Thomas Vinterberg was also nominated for Best Director for this as well because he won the Oscar for International Film. Mm. But he said, I believe that this film would play well at the end of a pandemic. Like, yeah, <laughs> and it certainly did. And, because it's, and it did, yeah. But I think it's with a film that he said, it, alcohol is more of a motif in this film. It's more about uh, a second chance at reinvigorating your life and um, finding a fresh start. But it also shows that like indulging it can uh, lead to those horrendous more like especially with a friend with who has the uh the twin the twin babies and the the young son and the wife comes in so it's yeah <laughs> in that situation because it shows like look how fun it is to be in this bar like jumping around and like crowd surfing but then at the same time it's like crawling back into bed and having the wife wake you up because you've uh you, you may have wet the bed <laughs> <laughs> yeah is there anything else we've talked about everything so um just you know i'm not against mads getting more hollywood work in theory like i'm happy he's employed uh, the money must be great i i would take it but uh, I just think he's a very interesting actor when given room to breathe and flesh out parts. And, you know, in things like Doctor Strange or Rogue One, I think his characters feel a bit like afterthoughts. So, and he doesn't have enough time to leave an impressions. And, uh, you know, I, I want to see in Hollywood blockbusters him given the chance to see and steal. I do, he, he did say a funny thing in a quote where they, some interview asked him, like, what's the most challenging role to date or what's the most challenging uh, thing he has to do on film? And he said, to me... A challenging role is one in which you don't understand the character's motifs so you're trying to figure the character out as you're going along so he says with another round and the hunt he knew with the characters what state of mind they were in so it was easy for him to jump into that role but he said like something challenging to me would be like standing in the desert pretending i'm fighting a giant scorpion or something yeah. <laughs> that's fair yeah rate review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast from email i know the face pod at if you'd like to reach out to the show follow us on twitter follow us on instagram follow us on facebook thanks to charlene fernandez for editing and forwarding our socials andrew where can people find more of your work you can find me at the headstuff gaming section where we talk about what we play why we play and how we play it sean anything you'd like to plug i know you reviewed suicide squad for headstuff recently i could plug suicide squad so definitely check that one out it's a it's an absolute blast james gone unleashed follow me at a at cold coffee insta or uh, Cold Coffee Press on Facebook uh, or just follow me on Instagram at Seanock the Hedgehog I post silly things but uh, yeah that's it really Great. and please if you listen to our show and you like it consider signing up to Headstuff Plus and donating five year a month you'll have special bonus episodes of the show see you later soon folks bye bye take care bye this show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.